the pastors here. Yeah, so glad to be with you. Over the last few weeks, Pastor Mike has been walking through the life of Joseph while also kind of sharing some of his favorite movies along the way. He couldn't be here today because he had a little minor surgery this week, but he's well, he's fine, but I'm standing in his place today. Um, and I want to share one of my favorite movies with you. And here's the deal. I realized Pastor Mike talked about this movie a couple weeks ago, but I don't want to hit him while he's down, but his love for this movie is like so pale in comparison to mine. So um, don't rub it in when you see him. But when I was a small child, I'll, I'll never forget, my father took me to a drive-in movie theater to see Star Wars. And I, from the moment Princess Leia walked on, and she bent down to R2-D2 and she said, help us Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're our only hope. I was in. I was in. The whole awe and wonder of it all, I was like, this is, this is it, you know? My first true love was Luke Skywalker. Um, I still hold on pretty tightly to that. Maybe a little, too, a little bit too much makes people uncomfortable sometimes. But my dad kind of took it to a whole new level with me because when he took me to see Star Wars, at that time our family wasn't going to church, we weren't Christians, and so um, my dad would use Star Wars as a means to like comfort me. So I'd be afraid because Darth Vader was under my bed, and my dad would come in, he'd calm me down, and he'd say, you don't have to worry, the force is with you, you know? It's strong with you. And then he would say, you know, if you're really afraid, just talk to Princess Leia and ask her to send more of the force to comfort you. And so... I believed that. Like the force was, I was all the time trying to move things with, you know, my hand, just guiding it. I loved it. It was next level in our family. And I had seen all three movies in the movie theater. So we went, and I'll never forget going to see Return of the Jedi when it ended. And I remember the day because I had passed out earlier watching my mom get her blood taken. Apparently not one for needles. So I remember sitting there watching it as it was all coming together. And I was like, this is the greatest ending of all time. Who knew it could end so perfectly, minus the Ewoks. But whatever, we won't remember that part, right? But it was so great. Everybody loves a great ending to a story. And today we're going to look at the ending of Joseph's story, the end of uh, his dream fulfillment. We started with a boy who had a dream, and now we have a man who's in charge. He has power. And we're going to look at his story. And this dream, it started in Genesis 37. And it's this God-inspired dream that not only would Joseph's brothers bow down before him, but his parents would also. And remember, we'll remember that when Joseph first got this dream, he kind of responded in such a way that maybe wasn't the right handling of it. Got his brothers a little angry, ended up in slavery, ended up in prison, and now he's in Power. And that's where we left off last week. And today, we're going to, uh, spoiler alert, see the fulfillment, the full conclusion, that 20 years later, his original dream finally comes true. And this fulfillment is a story of restoration and redemption. But I need you to know that it is also really messy. It's really messy. We do see it come to full fruition, but we also see so much pain because we're talking about wounded people. So let's dive in and kind of see what happens. We picked up, remember Joseph had just explained Pharaoh's dream. 
He'd been given a position of power, and then a famine came. And the Bible says the famine came, and it was so severe that it was felt throughout the whole world. And this famine impacted Joseph's family. So Jacob, Joseph's father, he says to his 10 sons, I've heard they have grain in Egypt. Now, Egypt is like 250 miles away from where they are, so from like here to Spokane. He says, I need you to go to get food for the family. And that's where we pick up. You can follow along in this, on your notes or on the screen. It says this. So Joseph's 10 older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. But Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with him for fear some harm might come to him. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food for the famine, for the famine was in Can Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor of all of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. And when they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. So here it is, that first little hint that Joseph's God dream is going to be fulfilled. But before it does, it's got to get a little messy. Because Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. And so right away, Joseph accuses them of being a spy because he wants to collect some information. He wants to know, who is, your, who is your father? Is he still alive? Do you have any more brothers? He wants details. And he's collecting that information, and out of anger or something, he throws them into jail for three days. And when he brings them before him again, he says, listen, I'm, I'm going to give you a test to find out if you're spies. Why don't you go back and get your younger brother that you didn't bring? But in order to do that, you need to leave one brother here as collateral. And so they threw Simeon into jail. And so they go back, all nine brothers return with the grain they were given. They tell their father, hey, listen, the one in power, he wants us to bring Benjamin, the youngest. To this, Jacob says no. He says, no way. Leave Simeon in jail. I'm not sending my youngest son, the son of my only son left from this mother. I'm not sending him. And so they don't go until they run out of grain. And Jacob realizes he has to send his sons to Egypt, which is interesting. One of the sons says, Judah, he says, we could have went twice in the time you waited. So imagine Simeon sitting in jail by himself wondering, are my brothers ever coming for me? So he sends his sons back to Joseph, including Benjamin. He loads them up with money and gifts from their land, and they come before Joseph. And Joseph, upon seeing his brother, he is moved to tears. He's weeping. He's celebrating. He calls for a feast. And it feels like a good time to end the story, but unfortunately, we don't get to end it here because it gets even more complicated. Joseph is both filled with joy of seeing his younger brother, but he is also so deeply wounded by his brothers that he sets another trap for them. He sends them on their way home. He places some of his personal silver in the bag that is Benjamin's. And when they've gone a little way off, he sends one of his staff members and says, go accuse them of stealing from me. So the brothers return again to Joseph, and this time they're filled with fear. They don't know, what is this man in power going to do to us? And in that moment, Joseph, he, he can't handle anymore, and he comes clean. And this is what it says. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there right in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer, and he said again, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. 
But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who made me advisor to Pharaoh, the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all of Egypt. So then Joseph sends his brothers back home, get your families, get our parents, come live under my care and my leadership in Egypt. And Joseph is then reunited with his father, and we see in this moment the fulfillment of the dream. Now from dream to fulfillment is 20 years. When Joseph got that dream, he was 17. Now try to remember when you were 17. For some of us, that's easier. Some of us, a little harder. But 17 years, 20 years felt like forever. Like when I was 17, I couldn't even imagine that I was going to be 37 some days. That just seems, it didn't seem real, right? It, it surely wasn't going to last this long. And now that I'm in my 40s, I'm like, 20 years, it's like tomorrow. Like it can happen. It happens fast. But if you're Joseph, it's 20 years filled with pain, with suffering, and, and, and moments of favor. But 20 years the whole time wondering, when is this dream finally going to come true? And I think we can learn a lot from Joseph's life. I think we can learn a lot about his story and the connection to our story. And I also think we can maybe ponder for a moment, like, what does this mean about my own dreams and my own fulfillments and my own hopes? And the more I read Joseph's story, I think it comes down to, like, this one big idea. And it's this, that fulfillment comes when we do our part while God does his part. And you can write next to that, you can write God's work, our work. See, as I look at the story of Joseph, it is so clear that there are moments that God is clearly intervening. He is giving dreams. He gives divine wisdom to interpret dreams. He's bringing relationships to Joseph, all leading up to the dream. God is clearly at work. And one of my favorite authors, he says this. He says that when we don't see it, we need to trust that God is always behind the scenes working. God is working. But there's also part of Joseph's story that is so clearly Joseph doing his work. He's being a diligent worker. He's resisting opportunities to take the easy way out. He's saying yes when a door opens in front of him. Eugene Peterson talks about the Christian faith in this way. He says, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Our work is often to keep doing what we know is right when it's right in front of us, even when things aren't working out. And in this last part of Joseph's story, I think I see some of the things that Joseph is working with, he's wrestling with, that I think can become our work, that they can help us understand the restoration and redemption that God wants to bring to our lives. So let's unpack what our work is in the fulfillment journey. And the first one, which is your first fill-in on your outline, is this. Grieve for what is lost. And you can put next to that, or, or not yet fulfilled. In Genesis 45, it says that he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians could hear him. See, looking at the conclusion of this story of Joseph, we see over and over he's kind of moved to tears, moved to weeping. And I think it would be a misread of the text to assume that those tears are always about joy. 
that they're always about happiness. So this is coming together so beautifully. Sure, there are moments where the tears are for joy, but there is also tears of grieving. With each visit from his brother, he breaks down in tears. Joseph's overwhelmed with loss. He's emotional, like, what, what is happening to my father? Is my brother still alive? Those are fears. And we see Joseph weeping. He's weeping at all that he's lost at the hand of his brothers. There's not a delight in, yes, man, this is finally coming true. Look at all the things I went through. No, I think he's grieving at, man, it's finally happening, this dream, but I didn't know it would hurt so badly to come true. He grieves. And as a person who's been part of the American church for over 30 years, can I tell you that one thing we are not good at doing is grieving. You could say that we have lost the art of lament, which I find so fascinating because if you look into our Jewish traditions, our culture, where we come from, it's so deeply rooted in how to grieve and how to mourn. When you read Psalms, you find a, 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 a song of praise right next to a song of lament. They live together. There's a, there's a book in the Bible called Lamentations, and it, the whole book is, get, get ready for this, about lamenting, right? And then Jesus, he's not afraid to weep. One of the most powerful scriptures from the Gospels is Jesus wept. But as an American Christian... And I say American because in America because I have traveled overseas and I have sat with believers from other cultures who, who are suffering, who are, who are in the midst of pain, and they somehow are much more comfortable with grieving. But as an American Christian, as an American church, we seem to wrestle with this tension of God's goodness and life is hard. We are not comfortable saying God is in control, and yet I am grieving. And I want to make a bold statement, and it's this, that grieving is essential to the restoration process. Henry Nouwen said this, The dance of life finds its beginning in grief. Here, a completely new way of living is revealed. It is the way in which pain can be embraced, not out of a desire to suffer, but in the knowledge that something new will be born in pain. When we grieve, we make way to see the new things that God is doing, the new ways that dreams may be fulfilled. Now, I've had various dreams in my life. Um, as a child, as a fourth grade girl, I had a dream of owning a horse. I loved horses. Loved them. I would read about them. I went to horse camp. I'd watch The Man from Snowy River at least 100 times. I mean, I was committed to my love of horses, and I begged my parents. I was like, please, 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 please. My grandparents had a farm, so I was like, we have a place. Will you please buy me a horse? I promised them. I did. I literally promised them I will keep my room clean for four years. Now, I don't know why I picked four years, but let me tell you, it turns out I still can't do that. So it was a really big promise to keep my room clean for four years. And I'll never forget the day my parents came home and they said, we have a surprise for you. It's at grandpa's house. And I was like, it has come. Like I was so excited. I was going to get a horse. I got in the car. We, it was a 30 minute drive. And here's as a parent, I never tell my kids that I have a surprise for them when you have to wait because that is when they are the most annoying. So I'm certain that I was like, oh my gosh, my horse, my horse, my horse, my horse. Like I was like losing my mind. I'm sure we didn't have to wear seatbelts, so I was probably like all over the place. You know, I was going crazy. And I want to tell you right now that my parents did the best they could and they bought me a donkey. 
It's true. I wish that was not a true story, but it is a true story. Yeah. Bummer. Bummer. This was my first real lesson that life did not always go the way you had hoped it would. And I got some good news. I, I'm not grieving right now about a donkey, so that's good. Uh, the bad news is that since that moment, I've had many dreams and many hopes that have been shattered or unmet. And I have spent many moments in my life grieving for what has been lost. My parents' divorce, my mother's mental instability, unexpected death of those I have loved, loss. And these losses were often deepened by the people around me who were so uncomfortable with me grieving. They would say, don't you love Jesus? Don't you trust that he has a plan for you? And I want to say, yes, I trust it so much. But today, I am so sad. Today, I am hurting so much. Can we live in that tension of, yes, God is in control. He is so good. But this life is so hard. And maybe you're here this morning and you can't even in this moment imagine that hopes and dreams are possible. Because right now you're in the midst of loss or suffering or fear. And I want to say to you, I'm sorry. And I want to tell you that it is okay to grieve. Paul instructs us to weep with those who weep. And we weep with you. And we grieve for all that you have lost. The next thing that I think it becomes our work that we see from Joseph is this, is we resist the urge to make choices out of our brokenness. At the beginning of the series, Pastor Mike talked a little bit about this idea that Joseph's initial response to the, to the dream was a reflection of his brokenness. He responded in a way that showed how he may not have had it all together. But after that, we basically watched Joseph keep making the right decision, one right after the other. And tell this part of the story. If you read chapters 43 through 45, which is the end, the fulfillment, you see Joseph wrestling with his own brokenness. In one moment, he's throwing a feast for his brother. In the next moment, he's trapping them. And you, read, you see it over and over. Genesis 42, Joseph puts them in prison for three days. A few verses later, then he chose Simeon from among them and had them tied up right before their eyes. And then Genesis 44 is where we recount how Joseph sent them out with the silver. And listen to the last few verses of that, three, starting in verse 3. The brothers were up at dawn and were sent on their journey with their loaded donkeys. But when they had gone only a short distance and were barely out of the city, Joseph said to his palace manager, chase after them and stop them. When you catch up with them, ask them, why have you repaid my kindness with such evil? Why have you stolen my master's silver cup, which he uses to predict the future? What a wicked thing you have done. And I think sometimes when we look at the life of Joseph, we kind of want to skip over this part because we don't know what to do with these passages. They show us that he's operating out of his brokenness because I want to tell you right now, if you didn't know this, revenge is an easy option. Punishing people for hurting you, that's an easy option. And Joseph, he's had so many things he's overcome. So many times he's done the right thing. Even when he had reasons not to do the right thing. But enter the brothers. 
the ones who caused his pain. And what does it do? It triggers our brokenness. And I think for us, some of us, that's the same. Those, those closest to us who have caused us so much pain, they bring out our brokenness. And nobody is perfect. And the good news is that God is still working behind the scenes even when we choose to operate out of our brokenness. But this moment reminds us that our brokenness, our pain, it is a bad guide. It's not the one that should be, should be leading us. Apostle Paul talks about this battle between the flesh and the spirit. And that we, the flesh wants to do these things, but the spirit is leading us this way. And that's a real battle. And in this moment, we see Joseph operating out of his wounded flesh. And what does it do? It hurts his brothers. It hurts his, fathers, which, his father, which I'm assuming is the last person he wants to, do, to hurt. But that's who he causes pain to. And as you're thinking of your own story now, your own hopes and your dreams, are there ways in which you are making choices about how you reach those dreams that is actually hurting other people? Are you allowing your wounds and your brokenness to be a guide? See, the story is finally fulfilled when Joseph decides he's no longer going to inflict pain. He reveals himself. And that's when the restoration, that's when the redemption begins to take place. And it leads him to his next big thing, and that is this, be bold with forgiving others. In the end, Joseph chose to be bold with forgiveness. And I mean bold because not only did he offer them forgiveness, he offered them protection. He offered them to the benefits of living under his newfound power. It's bold. It's an outlandish forgiveness. And in order for restoration, for full fulfillment in our stories, we have to be willing to be bold with our forgiveness. Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. See, I think Joseph realized when he had operated out of his brokenness, that same evilness that was in his brothers was also in him. And so it led him to, to forgive. And that invitation is to us too. We have the opportunity. We get to choose. Will we forgive people who have hurt us? Or will we sit with bitterness? And will we sit with hatred? And will we push out any any element of love in our life. Theologian Lewis Smead says this, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover that you are the prisoner. When we hold those things and when we choose bitterness, what we're doing is, it is causing harm to others, but let's not forget it's causing harm to us too. Be bold with forgiving others. Next, we need to do this. We need to ask, my, how are my hopes connected to a larger hope? In Genesis 46, when everybody has come, and Jacob and all his descendants, they're in Egypt now. It says that my sons and my grandsons, my daughters and my granddaughters, all descendants are now here. And what that does is it sets up all of history. 
See, Joseph's story, when he invites his family in, what he's really doing is inviting Israel to be in Egypt. And Israel being in Egypt makes way for Moses and the wandering in the wilderness, and it makes way for the kingdoms that would come, which makes way for King David, which makes way for the lineage of Jesus, which makes way for the early church, which makes way for you and me. See, Joseph's story is not a singular story. It's our story. It is our work to remember that our hopes, while they may be a very individual story, they are connected to a greater story. It's easy in this world. We've been taught to put our head down and just focus on our own stuff, our own story, our own dreams, our own fulfillments. What does God have for me? But it is so much bigger than that. In 1968, Fran Lee and her family, with a group of 12 other families, decided they wanted to plant a church called Overlink. And they had this dream. This was their dream, reaching the east side for Christ. And Fran is still committed to Overlake, but it's nearly been 50 years. And if you fast forward, I want you then to meet someone named Lydia. And Lydia is the daughter of Obed. And many of you might recognize him because he teaches the rooted class that we, were just, we heard about in the baptisms. He teaches those here at Overlake. And when he was young, his family moved to America from Pakistan to build a better life for themselves. Obed started attending Overlake in 1991, and his family got involved in children's ministry and student ministries, and last year, his daughter Lydia graduated from high school. And now she serves in our middle school ministry, leading a group of sixth grade girls. Lydia and Fran have never met each other. They've never met. But look at how their stories are so deeply connected to each other. The hope of Fran's family, the hope for Overlake, is connected now also to Lydia, which is connected to the families of those sixth graders, which is connected to the dreams of those sixth grade girls who believe this moment they have the capacity to change the world because of Fran Lee in 1968. We have to resist the cultural norm to says, see your individual story as a solitary story. We are connected to each other. And some might use the word legacy, but I'm going to be as bold to use the word church. That's the word. We ser this serves as a reminder that we are connected to those around us now, to those in our past, and those that are yet to even come. We ask that question, how are my dreams, how are my hopes connected to this greater hope? And finally, we do this. We celebrate what has been fulfilled and what is yet to come. And I think for many of us, we're headed into a week of celebration, of thanksgiving. And I think it can be a mixed emotion season. Some of us, it's easy to head into this season with, with thankfulness. But some of us are still in that place of, it feels like a wrestling. And I just want to encourage us that we can first celebrate what God has already done, the restoration and the redemption that has already taken place in our souls, in history. And we can also hope and celebrate what we know he's going to do, which he has promised, that he will make all things new. 
That where there is tears, there will be no more. Where there is brokenness, there will be wholeness and healing. He has promised us that. And we can be thankful. We can celebrate that that is coming, that that is, is yet to come. So we cling to that hope. We celebrate what he's done and what he's going to do. And as we wrap up this whole Joseph series, the whole series kind of has been summarized by this one line, God still has a plan. God still has a plan. And today I want you to be encouraged that God is at work. And maybe you're in a place where you can't see it and you, you kind of even doubt it. I want to tell you that he's at work. But I also want to challenge you to participate. That when you hear the statement that God still has a plan, I want you to know the plan is you. The plan is you saying yes to restoration. The plan is you saying yes to redemption. Your obedience is someone else's fulfillment. We have to be willing to do our part. So may this thought be our hope and our challenge. Fulfillment comes when we do our part while God does his part. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for hope. Hope that we have that you are at work. That even when we can't see it or when we are unaware of it, God, you are at work. And we trust that. We lean into that truth, God. I pray for my friends who are in here who are grieving. God, I pray that we would be a family that comes around them. That we would weep with them. We'd be your comfort to them in their season of grieving. And I pray for my friends who are aware that they are operating out of their brokenness. God, I pray for a gentle nudging to move, to move on, to be bold with forgiveness. God, I thank you for that reality that we are so connected, even when we are resistant to that idea, God, we are so connected to each other and that our hopes are tied to each other, God. God, I pray right now that you would bring us hope and comfort that you are at work and that you are, you are going to finish what you started. You will fulfill your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.